One of the premier commentators on Isaiah, John Oswalt, says, Isaiah's literary grandeur is unequaled. Its scope is unparalleled. And its view of God is unmatched. After eight sermons in Isaiah, I'd absolutely agree. But I think I'd have to add, its message is overwhelming. (laughs) I don't know about you, but uh, I feel a bit lost in all of the information that we have gained just through the first eight sermons out of about 40 in Isaiah. I need a review. When I started studying this week, I had to go back and literally just do a review of what we've learned so far. So let's take a few minutes and do that together, if, if you don't mind. So a long time ago and far, far away, God chose to reveal his grace and his glory to the nations of the world by choosing an earthly people, making a covenant with that people, and establishing them in his kingdom on earth. That people is called Israel. So God anointed King David to rule over his kingdom, Israel. And then King David transferred a peaceful kingdom to his son Solomon. And Solomon transferred a peaceful Israel to his son Rehoboam. And that's where the peace stopped. Because Rehoboam and his brother Jeroboam fought to control the kingdom of Israel. They divided it and plunged it into civil war between the north and the south. The ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. The ten tribes to the north called Israel, or very often in Isaiah, Ephraim, uh, went from bad to worse. And they were plagued with corruption and conflict until... In 722 B.C., Israel was conquered by a superpower nation called Assyria, and that portion of Israel was never to be heard from again. The portion of God's people in the south, called Judah, they retained the Davidic line of kings through Rehoboam, And they continued as the remnant of God's people. But they turned away from the Lord as well. So during this divided kingdom, during the civil war between the north and the south, God raised up his prophet to give his message to his people, specifically in the south. His name was Isaiah. And Isaiah's ministry lasted about 40 years from 740 to about 700. God's message to God's people in the book of Isaiah is summarized in that phrase that you see right there. Trust me, I am the Lord, your God. Trust me, 
So friends, if you get nothing else out of any sermon that we ever preach in our study of Isaiah, the Lord God of the universe is telling you, you can trust me. I am the Lord your God. The book of Isaiah, the message of Isaiah, to Judah in the south, can be divided up into two main sections. The book is 66 chapters, and it can be divided into two sections. And I've actually put this on the screen for you, because chapters 1 through 39 is where God confronts the sin of his people. And then chapter 40 through 66 is where God comforts his people with the promise of redemption and restoration. So part one goes for 39 chapters. God is confronting the sin of his people. So if, as one of our members said to me recently, man, Isaiah feels pretty dark. You're exactly right. For eight sermons now, we've been in the section where God is confronting the sin of his people. It is dark. It has a lot of judgment in it, but not all judgment. And we're going to be here for a while longer. This morning, our text is in chapter 9 and 10. You can see we've got a a ways to go. But what have we learned so far in this first part from chapter 1 through where we are today? Well, first of all, chapter 1 is the sin of Judah. God specifically reveals to Judah their sin through Isaiah. Then chapter 2 through 5, He tells them about a day of judgment and gives them the promise of salvation. And he did this several different times through chapter 2 and 5. There's judgment coming, but I'm going to save a remnant. And every time he talked about that remnant, do you remember what he talked to them or what he called it? The branch. He referred to Israel as his vine and he was going to preserve a branch as a remnant. That was chapter 2 through Five. Then when we came to chapter 6, we saw the holy God calling Isaiah and giving him a message that he specifically said is not going to be obeyed or received. Chapter 7 through 12 is that message. Well, at least part of it. What is the message? Well, For two weeks now, Alan and Bruno have brought us that message. Alan dealt with chapters 7 and 8. Here's God's message to Judah. Trust me, not the nations. And then his promise, I'm going to redeem you through a son. His name is Emmanuel, God with you. You remember that famous passage in chapter 7? Then Bruno, last week, Preach chapter 8 and 9. God's message was, fear me, not the nations. But isn't that exactly our struggle, even as the church today? We don't trust God. We look to other things and trust other things and other people. And we don't fear God. We fear people. So God's message of trust me and fear me is very timely for us today. And when God says, fear me, not the the nations, he follows that up and 
And Bruno showed us that he's going to redeem us through a son, the divine king of God's kingdom. And that was that other famous passage there in in chapter 9. Well, that brings us to our text for this week. And the next couple of chapters, 9, 10, 11, and 12, I'm going to be handling. And it's God's message to Judah. Trust me. Except this time he tells me, I'm going to take care of all of your enemies. I will judge your enemies. And then just like he has the past three sections, he's going to promise to redeem his people through that son who is going to be the Messiah King of his kingdom. So throughout this section, 7 through 12, what we see is this pattern of God calling his people to trust me, not the nations, and then giving a promise through a son. Fear me, not the nations, then giving a promise through this son. Trust me, I'll take care of your enemies. And then the promise through this Redeemer son. That brings us to our text this week. That's where we've been so far. I hope that brings just a little bit of clarity As we come now to our sermon text for today, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 10, verse 4. I believe that's on page 573 in the Black Bibles at your feet. Let's take just a moment to pray and ask God's help as we hear His Word. And it's a helpful reminder that what we're doing this morning is you're not listening to me. You're listening beyond me to the Word of God. And my desire is to faithfully explain it and then press it on our hearts. So God, we bow before you because you're God and we're not, and we have a desire to hear from you today. That's why we came. So I pray that through your Word you would speak, not just in generally, but that you would speak to us personally. And I pray that you would transform us through your word, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8 through 10, 4, laying in front of you, I hope all of you will get out a copy of God's word and just lay that on your lap. I want you to follow along this morning. I want you to notice that this is a poem. This is a poem about the relentless and unstoppable judgment of God against the relentless and unyielding wickedness of Israel. Now I say relentless and unstoppable judgment of God because that's the most notable feature of this poem. That's strange to have a poem about the relentless and unstoppable judgment of God, but that's exactly what this poem is about. I say it's the most notable feature because I want you to know, to notice that this poem has four stanzas and each of the stanzas ends with the same refrain. Look at verse 12. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is outstretched still. 
Look at verse 17. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Look at verse 21. Do you see it a third time? That's the end of stanza three. Now look at chapter 10, verse 4, and you'll see it at the end of the fourth stanza. Please read Isaiah 10, 4 with me, the end of it, this refrain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Do you see the relentless and unstoppable judgment of God there? God's anger is relentless. It's not turned away. It's coming and coming and coming, and it's not turned away. It's relentless. And that refrain tells us that his hand, his powerful hand that is acting according to his anger, his hand is unstoppable. Notice that God's hand continues to be stretched out in judgment, and no one has the power to stop it. Now listen, friends, I admit this is a hard message for us to hear. There might be a lot of things that a pastor would want to preach this morning instead of a poem about the relentless and unstoppable anger of God against the relentless and unyielding sin or wickedness of Israel. But the fact is we need to hear. We must hear all of God's word. And this is part and important. I remember my ninth grade English literature class, Miss Ruby. We read Jonathan Edwards' 1741 sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I remember reading that in ninth grade lit class at Hollidaysburg Junior High School. I remember as we read out loud about the anger of this God that I as a Christian was embarrassed because God was being presented as angry and full of wrath. And I knew that most of the kids in my classroom and my teacher as well, they were not Christians. I wanted them to hear about a God of love and grace instead. seeing this emphasis here in this poem repeated four different times, we have to ask, what is all of this that has summoned the relentless and unstoppable judgment and anger of God? What is all of this? Well, friends, the answer is it is the relentless and unyielding wickedness of Israel. As we read this poem in just a moment, you're going to find out that this poem describes the spiritual state of Israel as willfully rejecting God and spiraling downward into the depths of social depravity wherein they were devouring one another and oppressing the most vulnerable people in Israel. In short, God's judgment is relentless and unstoppable because Israel's 
wickedness is relentless and unyielding. So wait a minute. I thought Isaiah was talking to Judah in the south, not Israel to the north. Why is God through Isaiah declaring his judgment against Israel, their warring brothers to the north, why is God declaring judgment against Israel to the people in the south? Well, no doubt for several reasons, but primarily because Judah was following their warring cousins on this downward spiral, and God was calling them to repentance. You see, that's the grace of God to us. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 11 says, When the scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. When a wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. You remember what that was like when you were a kid? And maybe you saw your brother or sister get in trouble for something and you wised up. Maybe that happened at home or in class. Maybe it happens when you see the, the guy in front of you get pulled over by the policeman and you happen to be going the same speed as that one. When the scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. This poem teaches us What happens when a nation or a person refuses the word of God? So my prayer is that like Judah, each one of us will examine ourselves and respond in repentance and faith. So let's read this poem together. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8 through 10, 4. And as we do, I want you to notice that it goes in a downward spiral. And that's emphasized by the first word of each of the stanzas. The downward spiral goes from the word to the people, to the wickedness, to the woe. The word to the people to their wickedness, and then to the woe of inescapable judgment. And they all, as I said, end with that same bone-chilling refrain. Friends, this is God's Word, beginning in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. 
For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Stanza number two, verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Stanza number three, verse 18. For wickedness burns like fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. And they roll up in a cloud of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. And the people, the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together, they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Stanza number four, the beginning of chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside from the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners, or fall among the slain. Read the last refrain with me. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. That's God's word to Judah and to us, friends, as we hear of the scoffer being punished. May we become wise, and respond in faith. 
So I want us to take a look at the four stanzas of this poem, just one at a time, and I want us to look at two things. The relentless and unyielding wickedness in Israel, and the relentless and unstoppable judgment of God. We're just going to look at those two things as we go through the four stanzas of of this poem. So go back to chapter 9, verse 8 through 12. And stanza 1 begins with the word. Notice the Lord has sent a word specifically to and against Israel. What do they do with the word that God sent to them? They rise up in their self-confidence, in their pride and arrogance, and they refuse God's word. They say, oh God, I know that you want us to change our ways, but look in verse 10. If you tear our buildings down, we're going to build them back better. We're going to, we're not going to use clay, clay, uh, bricks. We're going to use dressed stones. Uh, God, if you, if you allow the enemy nations to come in and cut down our sycamores, oh, that's okay. They were lousy little trees anyway. We're going to plant big cedars in their place. What Israel is exhibiting here is pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. God says, I sent you my word, calling you to repentance. You refused it. And so I will what? Send you enemies and judgment there in verse 11. So the Lord raised up the adversaries against them, people from the north and the east and the west. All of them come. Rezin comes. Syrians come. Philistines come. And what do they do in verse 12? They devour Israel with open mouth. Like Pac-Man just chomping on Israel, having their way. That's God's judgment on those who refuse his word. That's just stanza one. Look at stanza two. It begins with the people. So not just nationally, but the people. There in verse 13, they did not turn to him who struck them. They did not inquire of the Lord of hosts. So when God sent them his word, Israel refused God's word. They refused to turn to God. And instead, look here, they turn to false teachers, false leaders. So what does God do? He cuts off the leaders, the head and the tail. I think that's interesting. The head, he says, are the elders, the honored men, probably the political leaders of of, uh, the nation at the time. And who's the tail of Israel? Isaiah probably chuckles as he said, that's their false prophets. At the tail. But God cuts them off. Why? Because the people are looking to them rather than God for leadership. We see this in the book of Amos. Amos was the prophet that God sent to the north in Israel. Through Amos, God prophesied to Israel and God said this, I withheld bread from you. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So, 
I withheld rain, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So I brought blight and mildew among you, yet you did not return to me. I carried away your horses. I overthrew your armies, yet you did not. Do you get the pattern? Israel refuses to repent. They won't obey God. They won't listen. Their wickedness is unyielding and relentless. So, the Lord cuts off the false leaders and then notice tragically, tragically, verse 17, therefore the Lord does not rejoice over the young men, has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. Why? Because everyone is godless. Listen, when God, who is known as the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widows, when God withdraws his compassion from the most vulnerable, you know that that nation has been cut off. God withdraws his compassion even from the most vulnerable in Israel because of their unyielding and relentless wickedness. Look at stanza three. And here it begins with not the relentless wickedness, but it begins with the relentless judgment of God in stanza three. Because now that God has withdrawn his compassion, what happens? Wickedness is free to run its course. And so we see that wickedness burns and consumes everything in its path. Look there at verse 18. It, it burns like a fire. It consumes everything. Wickedness unleashed is devastating. And so what does it do? It causes the people who have embraced it to consume one another. And so there at the end of the stanza three, we see that they're devouring each other, eating their own flesh, metaphorically, and then still being unsatisfied as they live for total self-serving. So the Lord allows the wickedness to run its destructive course, and Israel lives for self and remains unsatisfied. We come then to stanza number four. Now that wickedness is running its course, a woe is pronounced, a woe of judgment. There at the end of verse, I mean at the beginning of verse, uh, uh, chapter 10, forgive me please, the beginning of chapter 10. Woe to those who decree, that sounds like legislation, doesn't it? Who decree iniquitous decrees, the writers who keep writing Oppression, the culture of Israel had embraced the law of oppression. They were devouring one another so much that they were oppressing the most vulnerable among them, the, the fatherless and the widows. The relentless wickedness of Israel oppresses the weak. And so the relentless judgment of God comes along and look in verse 3. 
God asks a series of questions. All right? You want to live your life the way you want to live it? You refuse my word? What are you going to do on the day of punishment? To whom are you going to flee for help? Where are you going to leave all the wealth that you have amassed by consuming everything for self? Verse 4, on that day, nothing will remain but for you to crouch among the prisoners and fall among the slain. The relentless judgment of God appoints an inescapable day of punishment. Inescapable day of punishment. So friends, do you see the the spiraling effect of wickedness here when one starts by refusing the word of the Lord? Stanza one, God sends his word, they refuse it. So God sends more judgment. Their refusal to turn to God results in God's withdrawing his compassion from them. God's withdrawal allows wickedness to run its course. And finally, their wickedness ends in the woe of relentless and unstoppable judgment of God. That's bone chilling. That is a fearful poem. But friends, we don't have to go down that road. And neither did Judah. The reason God gave this poem to Judah was so that they would learn. So that they would look at themselves. So that they would repent and turn to the Lord. When you and I come to texts like this, and we see the downward spiral of, of wickedness that leads to an inescapable day of judgment, friends, we must examine ourselves to see if we find wickedness in our hearts and in our lives. Because wickedness, whether in sinner or saint, non-Christian or Christian, wickedness always leads to judgment. So let's go back and just do a little self-examination here. In stanza number one, we saw that Israel refused God's word. Do do you see any pride or any arrogance in your life where you refuse God's word? You you pick and choose the parts of, of God and his word that you want, that sort of meet with your own logic or way that you want to live? Do you see anything in your heart that rises up in pride against God? In stanza number two, a a bit of self-reflection might ask this question. Do you see how you might turn to false teachers rather than turning to God? For example, do you turn to podcasters and successful people or philosophers rather than turning to God and his ways and his wisdom for your life? Or or maybe just turn to yourself and trust yourself. 
your ability to make success and happiness in your life rather than turning to God and and going His way. Self-reflection, I think, would cause us to come to stanza three and and see that Israel is completely self-serving and and devouring everything for self. And and we've got to ask ourselves the the question as we hear this about Israel, do we see that same self-serving in our own hearts and lives where we devour things for self and devour money and use our time and even use other people? For self? The same wickedness that we see here in an incredibly gross and national way, even the smallest seeds of it in our heart is still lethal. As we come to stanza four and we see that Israel oppresses the weak, well, we can, we can let ourselves off the hook there, right? Now, friends, I'm I'm afraid we can't. Now, we may not be legislating laws that are abusing the fatherless or taking advantage of widows. But is there any way that you add to their oppression by not caring for them when you have the opportunity to do so? Is there any way that you actually given the right situation climb over other top uh, over top of other people to to promote yourself or just to take care of the ones you love but in the process you're abusing others i'm afraid that the same wickedness that we see here in incredibly vivid and national Scale, we can see the seeds in our own heart. And friends, what God means for us to do is to repent. To repent of all of it. Because while ninth grade me may not really like the anger of God against sin, the anger of God against sin is actually the love of God because all wickedness hurts you and others. So when we come to a poem like this, there's only one way to escape the relentless judgment of God that we deserve, not just Israel. There's only one way to escape it. And that's by turning to God turning to the one Messiah, Son, Emmanuel with us. The one whom He sent to save us from our intrinsic wickedness. So if we go back through this poem, we'll see that repentance in and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ transforms this poem into the relentless and unstoppable grace of God toward the relentless and unyielding humility of sinners. Because whereas God pours out His wrath in judgment against sin, 
God says in Isaiah chapter 66, and it closes the book out like this. It's beautiful. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, this whole thing started because Israel refused God's word. But friends, if you and I will humble ourselves and tremble at God's word, then he will transform us so that we are the object of his relentless grace rather than the objects of his relentless judgment. Quickly, let's just go back through those four stanzas and see. Stanza number one began with the word. God sent the word. Friends, John chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He, the Word, came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not out of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John tells us that Jesus Christ was the Word of God sent to us. What have you done with Jesus? Have you refused Him or have you received Him in humility? Stanza number two. Instead of turning to false teachers and popular successful people in philosophy, instead of trusting our own selves, we follow Jesus. He's the ultimate shepherd, the ultimate elder, the ultimate prophet. We follow Jesus. Because in Him, Paul says in Colossians, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Stands in number three. And because we receive Jesus and follow Jesus, then wickedness no longer runs its course in our life. Hey, this is the good news of the, of, of the gospel. Wickedness no longer runs its course in your life. When you're united by, to Jesus by faith, just like a vine and a branch, The righteousness of Christ runs its course through you. And what does the righteousness of Christ do? It transforms you from the inside out and causes you to bear fruit. Praise God that His righteousness is now unleashed in our lives to transform our wicked hearts. And finally, stanza four. Instead of oppressing others, what do we do? Because we're following Jesus and his righteousness is at 
running loose in our lives and transforming us from the inside out rather than oppressing others, what do we do? We follow Jesus into into a life of self-sacrifice and service. We follow Jesus not in the law of oppression, but in the law of love that actually thinks of others instead of self. Ah, but only, only for those who are willing to see it in your own heart. An oracle against Israel to Judah is meant to call Judah to repentance. Poems. Poems about the relentless and unstoppable anger of God toward the relentless and unyielding wickedness of Israel are meant to call every single person in this room to repent and follow Jesus and be transformed by him. Let's pray together, friends. God, I thank you so much for this poem, as as hard as it is. I thank you that you have shown us your judgment against the, the scoffer. I pray that you would make us simple in humility. Please help us to see our own sin. Please work in us genuine repentance and faith so that we can be rescued from ourselves. We don't deserve anything more than your relentless and unstoppable wrath. And if we think we do, we haven't seen ourselves the way you do. Please, don't just show us our sin, but show us the glory and grace of Jesus so that we can run to him. Because you promised to redeem us through your son, to bring us into your kingdom that is a kingdom of righteousness and peace. And we praise you for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.